Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, in this series called Love, Marriage, and the Baby Carriage. And the reason we went on that, in that order is because we really believe two people can fall in love. And we've been asking this question is, is it possible for two people to fall in love and then stay in love and really accomplish till death do us part? And, and when we ask that question, uh, I think there's something inside of us that goes, yeah, I think we can. Uh, at least I want to make it happen. And I think my marriage is going to last and we're going to make this thing work. And I think the reason that we feel that way actually has a lot to do with who God is and how he created us. And it's kind of about his thumbprint on our lives. He, he gave us a desire for those kind of relationships, that one man, one woman till death do us part relationship. And, uh, and then we talked last week about marriage. What does it look like to really be in a healthy, God-honoring marriage? And the idea that we would surrender to one another or elevate the needs and the importance of our spouses and our marriage. So it would look something like uh, when you two are together that you'd go, no, you first, no, you first, no, I love you, no, I love you, no, it's all about you, no, it's all about you, what do you need, no, what do you need, you're the best, no, you're the best, no, you, no, you, no, you. And then what we've been talking about, we go from love to marriage, and one of the things we just believe according to scripture is that God created gift, uh, gifts for us, and he gives us gifts, and we believe that sex is one of those gifts that God's given us, and the natural order for that is love, marriage, and then sex, and I think the reason for that is just in case no one's ever told you is that sex makes babies, and so next week we're going to talk about how do we raise kids, because once you fall in love and you get married and you begin to enjoy this thing that God created as a gift to you to be good for you um, called sex, and then you would begin to have babies and what do we do once we have babies and like this is a church filled with babies and I'm excited about that and I hope like 10 months from now we've got just tons more babies I'm like I'm excited for that first service there were all kinds of babies here and I just thought to myself man we're doing something right we just got a lot of of babies and we're going to talk about that uh, this morning but really what I want to start with is I want to give you uh, a few principles uh, about sex okay just a few principles these are truths um, I, I'm a big leadership guy. I like to listen to podcasts and uh, talks about leadership. And as nerdy as this sounds, as I was kind of struggling this week to put together a flow and how am I going to be clear in what I'm talking about, I actually found an old leadership talk that I heard from Andy Stanley. And so I don't, I don't claim a whole lot of originality here. I, I ripped a lot of this stuff off from him, but I, I think he's pretty smart. And so I'm, I'm thankful to be able to rip stuff off from him. But he was talking about leadership. He gave quite a few leadership principles, and as I went through my notes on that, I remembered that some of those were really practical to relationships, and I think really practical and relevant to us as we talk about sex. And so I just want to give us kind of a common place to start that will lead us into our conversation. And so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is the principle that God has given you and I appetites. He's given us things that we desire things that we hunger for. And in fact, as we talk about sex, I think our sexual appetite is created by God. Like the reason that you and the reason that I, the reason that we think about sex, crave sex, have an appetite for sex is actually because that's the way God created us. And it's actually about him and how he created us and how he designed us and what he wanted to do in our lives. And God gave us that appetite. Now look at it, as we go through scripture, As we go through scripture in Genesis, uh, we see how God created everything. And just to kind of give you a little bit of biblical teaching here, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is the chronological order of creation. Uh, In my opinion, it's kind of the matter of a fact, a written uh, chronological order. So God, day one, God created this and this and said it was good. Day two, God created this and this, said it was good. Day three. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2. 
And Moses, who writes the book of, of Genesis, slows down, but he revisits the day six. And so it's not another day of creation. It's not a separate day. Genesis 2 is Moses going, hey, something really significant happened on day number six. And I, I want to give you a clear picture of that. And I want to give you some details because I think it's really, really important what happens during the course of creation. And so kind of give you an overview, uh, overview of creation. Day number one, God creates space, earth, and light. And he says, this is all really good. But day number two, he creates the water below, real water, water we can swim in, and then what scripture calls waters above, but it's talking about the atmosphere. And he says it was good. But day number three, he creates dry land and plants, and he says, this is all good. Day four, the sun, the moon, the plants, the stars. And God says, this is all good. <coughs> Excuse me. Day number five, flying creatures and sea creatures. No idea why those two creatures in the same day, but God's sovereign and he had a plan. So well, creatures that could fly, creatures that could swim. And he says it is good. Day number six, he creates the land animals. And he creates Adam. So what's interesting about day number six is God for the first time says this is not good. Because what happens is he begins to see that Adam is without a partner and this is not good for him. And so Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 to 25, this is what God says. It said, then the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. And every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That God created Adam and said, this is not good. And then God creates Eve and says, Adam and Eve together, now this is good. In fact, this is the blessing. This is almost the commandment that God gives to Adam and Eve when they're created together. He said, and God blesses them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I think it goes a little something like this. God creates Adam, and he creates Eve, and he says, listen, you weren't good alone, and you wouldn't be good alone, but you'd be good together. And he goes, Adam, I created you, and you're good. And Eve, I've created you, and you're good, and you're both naked, and you're in the garden, and this is all for you, and I give you a gift. Listen, be fruitful, and multiply, and I just think God turned on his universal sound system in heaven, and he said, Adam, this is Eve, Eve, this is Adam, and let me turn on some music for you. And God said, listen, this is all for you. And 
I just want you to be fruitful. And I want you to multiply. And I want you to enjoy one another. I just want you to be in the garden. And I just want you to be naked. And I just want you to listen to this song. turn that off now. Some of you are like, I will never forget this message. And it's not even over yet. And God says, listen, I want you guys to experience one another. I want you to experience one another in a way that is unlike any other way possible. You see, I think maybe because the way we were raised, or maybe because of the churches we grew up in, or maybe it was the way our parents taught us, like when we get to that part of the Bible story, we think God like left the garden. Like, we think God is embarrassed about what's taking place. Like, we have this image, I think, of God that he looks down and sees Adam and Eve wrestling in the garden. He's like, guys, what are you doing? That's weird. Stop. And that's not true at all. That Historically, from a biblical standpoint, there was a time when there was no such thing as sex. And throughout the creation story, it says that God creates Adam, he creates Eve, and he goes, I have an idea. I have a gift that I want to give to you. It would be good for you. It would be a blessing to you. And not only would it be for making children, and not only would it be for procreation, but it would be enjoyable. And it would be something that actually would work and do something very significant on the deepest level of your life. And we see in the very beginning of creation, Adam and Eve are naked together in the garden. And yet they're fearless, they're shameless, they're guiltless. And God says, I want to give you this passionate, amazing experience that would happen between one man and one woman who made a commitment to be together till death do us part. And now the second principle says that you and I not only have appetites, but we've been distracted by sin. And that's true from a biblical standpoint. Because not only does the Bible, not only does the Bible give us an account of creation and what takes place there, but in Genesis chapter 3 it says Adam and Eve are in the garden and they decide to rebel against God. That they decide that they're smarter than God, they decide that their desires are greater than God's commandments, that they've decided that what they choose is greater than what God has told them to do. And under the influence of Satan, they decide to rebel against God, and what Scripture calls that is sin. They decide that their thoughts are greater than God's thoughts, that their ways are greater than God's ways, that their desires are more important than His will. And Adam and Eve eat of the tree that God forbid them to eat from. He said, listen, you can have all of this. There's just this one thing. There's just this one thing I want you to do. Don't eat from that one. Because if you do it, you will die. And they decide, you know what? We think tasting the fruit is actually better than not. But we think our desire is better than your will for us. And this is what's really, really fascinating. In Scripture, then, it records for us that the whole thing goes haywire. That the whole thing falls apart. And that things begin to change. That things go from how God created them to be to now be affected by sin. And what happens is in Genesis chapter 3, 7, it says, Then, this is right after they took the bite. This is right after sin entered the world. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a loincloth. The biblically, the first thing to go haywire after sin entered the world was sex and sexuality. That God had created Adam and he had created Eve. And he said, listen, just the way you are, you're fine. 
No guilt, no shame, no fear, no nervousness, just intimacy. And then Adam and Eve sin, and the first thing they realize is, hey, 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 you, you shouldn't know me like this. I got to cover myself up. We, we need less intimacy. And all of a sudden, guilt and shame and fear enters the scene. And what I believe is that in Genesis chapter 3, sex and sexuality began to turn into something that God never desired for it to be. That we ended up to lose out on the purity and the amazingness and the uh, passion that God created for us in sex. That all of a sudden sin turned into something that it was never meant to be. And see, the reason I also believe that is true is because we live in a culture that says that sex is something that it's really not. But we live in a culture that says that sex is all physical. That it's all about the physical aspect. That sex is just a physical act between two people, and it can be done anyway, in a marriage context, out of a marriage context, between a man and a woman, between a man and a man, between a woman and a woman, and you can throw in any variations there. It was just a physical thing. There were physical people that live in a physical world, and if we choose to get physical with one another, whose business is that? And yet, from a biblical standpoint, sex was never just physical. In fact, I think from a biblical standpoint, when God created sex, I think the goal or the point of sex was really intimacy. What I mean by intimacy, it was this ability to to know and to be fully known. And the reason I think that is because of scripture verses like Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Where it says, now Adam knew Eve and his, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now this is really important. This is a really important Bible verse in my opinion. Because however we translate the word new has really great significance for us. Because what scripture says is Adam knew Eve and they had a baby. And so either the word knew her means they had sex or it means the meet and greet time we just had is really, really dangerous. <laughs> And I don't think what the Bible is saying is like they gave each other a high five and said, hey, what's your name? And also she's like, well, I'm pregnant. I think what the Bible is saying is that he knew her in a very intimate way that God designed that they had sex with one another. And that they enjoyed the very thing that God created the way he intended to it. And it was an intimate thing to the point that the biblical language is that he knew her. In fact, one of the ways that word breaks down is the Greek word intima which is the root word of intimacy. And that it can have sexual aspects to it, but it goes much beyond that. That it's about knowledge. It's about intimacy. It's about a oneness. It's about a unification. It has a physical element, a spiritual element, and an emotional element to it. In fact, there's some places in Scripture that that word is actually translated deep conversation. That it would be about revealing the deepest parts of who you are to someone. And they revealing the deepest parts of who they are to you. And there's this back and forth, beautiful, significant, meaningful, deep conversation. What the scripture says is, Adam and Eve knew one another. And yet, we live in a world that says it's not about intimacy, it's just about physicality. And the reason I think we believe that is because, number three, our distracted appetite always says now instead of later. Our distracted 
sinful appetite always says now instead of later. See, not only do we live in a culture that's redefined sex, that you can be things like friends with benefits and there's casual sex and some people just call it Friday night, but you and I have sinful desires and that our appetites that have been created by God are actually distracted. And one of the things that happens is that every single one of us is distracted to change, to exchange the eternal for the immediate. This is instead of saying, hey, I want to do it God's way. Like, instead of doing the things that he commands us to do, the things that he's spoken of clearly in scripture, I want to do it my way. Like, if you're a single person and you're in the room, you will be tempted to not wait for marriage. And you go, hey, I would rather do it now than wait. And the thing is, you can do it now. And you can have your party now. But sooner or later, you'll have to pay the price. And at some point, it catches up with you. And at some point, there's some sort of consequence for that. See, every single one of us is tempted to exchange the eternal for the immediate. I saw a quote this week that said, if you really want to make an American mad, just make them wait. And I thought, how true is that? Like, if we go to a restaurant, and if we're not at a table with a cold cup of water within, like, a minute, we're upset. And you're like, I don't know if I'm going to tip. Like, I've been, like, five minutes waiting for my glass of water. And, like, if we log on to our computers, and if we're not on the World Wide Web in, like, a nanosecond, we're ready to change providers. And, like, I, I remember back in the day where it, like, did that do-do-do-do. Some of you aren't even old enough to remember that. You're like, what? And, and the thing is, is we want what we want, and we want it... Now, and this is what I've been thinking about is that if sex is just physical, like follow me on this, if sex is just physical, if sex isn't really anything more than a handshake or a high five or a fist bump between two people, if sex is just physical, then I think we should be able to treat it any way we want to treat it. But if it's more than that, if sex is really about something spiritual, if it's really about something emotional, if it's really about something physical, if it's really about this intimate, deepest part of who we are, then maybe we should treat it differently than the way our culture says we should. That maybe if it's more than that, maybe if it's something that God created for us, maybe if it's something that he designed and if it's something that he put boundaries around for us, that if it's all that, then maybe the best possible things we could do for our lives is treat it the way God told us to treat it. And see, the thing is, this is intuitive for every single one of us. Like, on some level, you naturally know this and you get it. Because every single one of us knows that the more valuable something is to us, the more delicately we treat it. Isn't that right? That the more valuable something is, the more careful we are. The more significant it is, the more security we put around it. The more tender or precious something is, the more tender we are with it. And see, if sex is just physical, then we should be able to treat it any way we want it. But if it's more than that, if it's more significant, if it really is spiritual, if it really is emotional, then maybe we should be really, really careful. And maybe we should really look for God's word. When we hear his word clearly, we should never doubt it. Maybe we should handle it differently. In fact, I really wanted to illustrate this 
for you, this idea that we handle things differently uh, according to their value. And so I put out a, a little note on Facebook and I said, hey, I'd really like to get a hold of a violin this week because my, my wife plays violin. And one of the things that I've known about violins, like I'm not, uh, I'm not a violinist. I don't even know if that's the right word. I can't play a violin. I can't make it sound beautiful. I can't even make it make real good sounds. But one of the things that's interesting about violins, and I'm not sure that this is true for other instruments other than violins, but violins, because of who created them, the material used, uh, because of how old they are and that kind of stuff, they have intrinsic value to them. In fact, a violin, the older it gets, actually gets more and more valuable. In fact, if you ever watch like Antique Roadshow or some of these pawn shops shows, you'd see that sometimes, some like very rarely, you'd find somebody that finds like an old violin. They're like, oh yeah, this has been in the family uh, for years. And all of a sudden they take it in and they realize, hey, this thing is really, really expensive, like worth millions and millions of dollars. And in fact, a, a Stradivarius guitar, or excuse me, a Stradivarius violin, is worth millions of dollars. And in fact, uh, there's one in Chicago in someone's private collection that's worth $30 million. Uh, I thought that was incredible. In fact, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the little guy with the big hat, he had, he had one that was sold at an auction just a couple years ago for right around $30 million. And, and the thing about the violin is it's just basically who created it? And how did they create it? And what kind of materials did they use? And what did that look like? And just because of that, just because of who crafted it, just because of the materials used, and because of the, the value that they put on it, those violins are incredibly expensive. Now, if you're wondering if I have a Stradivarius, the answer is no. Um, everybody knows we're in this Unleashed Division campaign, and if you handed me like a $10 million violin, I would cash it in, and then I would invite you to the grand opening of our new building. I might even give you a new parking lot, a spot, like, hey, this is dedicated to you because you lent me your really nice violin and I sold it. Um, I'm just saying. But what I do have, though, it is a pretty expensive violin here. I put a, a message out on Facebook and I said, hey, I'm looking for a violin because I think violins are delicate instruments. I think they're beautiful and they're handcrafted and all that kind of stuff. And I said, hey, I'm looking for a significant violin. I'm not looking for a cheapo. I want something that's, uh, you know, expensive to show people this idea that we treat things according to their value. And so I got an email message back from somebody and said, hey, I don't have anything like a Stradivarius. And I said, that's good because I would trade it in. And they said, but I do have Adele Gesus. And I said, I've never heard of a Adele Gesus. And they said, well, there was actually the Guarini family in Italy the same time as families like the... Uh, Amadis and the Stradivarius, who created two of the most significant, uh, most expensive violin lines. And they said this family actually learned from them and created their own line of violins. They're lesser known, and most people have never heard of them. However, their violins are comparable to a Stradivarius violin. And I said, really? They said the thing is, is they made more of them because they made violins for a longer period of time. So in the sense of a Stradivarius violin, there maybe it's only like 100 or, or some left. Maybe, maybe it's more than, maybe it's like 1,000, they think, are still on the face of the earth. With the Degusas, they, they said there's tons of them. You, you can find them almost anywhere. So this isn't like a million-dollar violin. It's a thousands-some dollars. I think this one was estimated like ten or $15,000. And so uh, I said, well, if you don't mind me, and I said, can I touch it? And they said, yeah, you can touch it. You just got to be careful. And they said, if you break it, you buy it. And I said, I'm going to build a building with it. And so, um, so this, is, this is the violin, and I, I want to be careful with it because they want it back. 
And here's the thing. It's hard for me to totally appreciate the value of this thing. Because like, like I said, I'm not a violin person. I can't make this thing sing. I can't make it play right. But none of that really matters when it comes to this violin because it's really all about who created it. It's all about who made it and whose craftsmanship is on this thing and what kind of material do they make. It smells really good. Do you smell it? You can actually smell the wood on it. It's pretty, I better use two hands. It's pretty significant. And it really is beautiful. In fact, I'd never heard of these or, or actually seen one before. And I'll probably never see one again. But th- this is a really expensive violin. Now, any, any musicians here? Anybody here who plays the violin? Anybody? Because you just might. Anybody play any kind of instrument and you just think it'd be cool to hold a, a, like a $15,000 instrument today? I'm trying to bless you. <laughs> Anybody? Nobody plays any musical. <coughs> Fraser, you play. Come here. I won't wait to hold this because I, I have a hard time appreciating this. But wait here, just stay there. There you go. Oh, that's not really a fifteen thousand dollar violin. Sixty bucks on Amazon. You can just throw it in there. Thanks, brother. Really? Just yeah, just throw it in there for real. Like, yeah, I'll catch it here. You throw it back if you ever see. It's, it's just a little $60. Thanks, bro. It's just a little violin. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love, I'll close it because you're like, I still can't believe that. Here's the thing. See, like, it literally gasped when I threw it to Wade. Wade freaked out. He's like, I... Uh. Thanks again for being my guinea pig. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. See, because I convinced you that that had all kinds of value and that it was worth thousands of dollars... You thought I should treat it a certain way, didn't you? And by the way, throwing it in the air was not part of your definition. And yet what I'm trying to tell you is you are incredibly valuable. Simply because of who created you. Simply because of the material that he used. Simply because that he endorsed you and designed you and because God himself says that you have worth and intrinsic value because you are his creation. And see, because of that, because you're priceless, because you cannot be replaced, because you are meaningful and significant, I think you should be really careful with the way you live. I think you should be really careful with the way you steward your sex and your sexuality. Because there's only one of you. And you have value. And you have intrinsic worth. And you're incredibly significant. And see, just as crazy as it would be for me to throw a really rare, expensive violin in the air, I think it would be just as crazy for you to treat your sex and sexuality as anything less than incredibly important, incredibly significant, and incredibly meaningful. But because you and I have these desires, listen to me, we will choose to treat our sex and sexuality as insignificant. That we would choose to say, God, I would rather have it now than have it as meaningful and valuable and extraordinary. That we would actually be tempted to give up on the eternal principles, the eternal truths of God, 
Like, listen, I'm just going to throw this thought out there for you. If God created sex, and he did, I believe that. And if God created you and he created man and he created woman, he said, listen, I'm going to create man, I'm going to create woman. And when they come into this marriage relationship, one man, one woman, death to his part, and God says, I'm going to give them as a gift sex. And it is a blessing to them. It's a spiritual, it's physical, it's emotional, and it's all those things. That if we really believe that, then doing it his way could be the best possible thing for us. In fact, I told this in the last service, and I mean this. I think there's just sex. But then I think there's sex that's worship to our Heavenly Father. This says, God, I believe your word, and I believe your truth, and I'm going to do it your way. And see, if we do it his way, the way he's commanded us to do it, then it would actually be worship. It would actually be a fragrant offering that's pleasing to him. And I think as he responds to that, I think what happens is when we have sex God's way, it's actually blessed sex. Like sometimes people ask me for marital advice, and oh, the bedroom stuff's not so good. And I go, listen, I can't get into all that, but here's what I tell you. If you do it God's way, it'll be the best possible sex you ever had. Because when he shows up, and when he inspires, and when he's being glorified, when he goes, hey, they're doing it my way, it's the best possible thing. But sometimes we'll be tempted to give it up and do it another way. They say, maybe I don't want to wait, so maybe, you know what, like I can just get on a computer and go to some websites and that works. You might go, you know what, hey, things in my marriage are a little rough right now, and so I'm not experiencing the intimacy that I want in my marriage, but hey, there's this girl at work, and I think she kind of likes me, maybe I could. Hey, and things aren't really going the way I thought they'd go in the bedroom, but hey, there's this guy at the gym, and I think he and I could go to some places I've never been before. And hey, I just think that maybe if I gave up on this thing, I could maybe get it another way. See, every single one of us will be tempted to take something really, really valuable, something really, really precious, something really, really tender, and say, I'd rather have it now than to protect it and do it the way that God commanded us to do. And here's what, here's, here's what I would tell you. I think we should handle this thing with care. I think we should be really, really careful. I think we should really be protecting ourselves and doing it the way God told us to do it. Because as I see all throughout the Bible, there's this theme when it comes to sex. And it says one man, one woman, and a death to his part relationship. That's what Moses says in Genesis. Jesus says it in the Gospels. One man, one woman, death to his part. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, writing a letter to the church in Corinth, says it this way. One man, one woman, till death to his part. Now, what's interesting is, is Paul writes to the church in Corneth. He's saying, listen, you guys are a little jacked up in this area. And even though Jesus has saved you, even though you, you've been saved by him and, and you're worshiping him, like you have not translated that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, that has some significance, that has some influence over what takes place in the sexual part of your lives. And so he begins to write them a letter. And his whole, his whole premise here is you need some truth. Like you need some truth so that you can change your minds. And if you change your minds, you'll change your actions. He says, I just want to help you in this area. In fact, the church in Corinth is all messed up, for real. All messed up. In fact, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's writing a letter. He says, here's the thing. Here, I'm in prison. I haven't even visited the church. And I just know there's some stuff messed up. He said, by the way, you've got a kid, you've got a young man in your church who is sleeping with his stepmother. Any of you really think that's okay? Like, does anybody really agree that we should just let that one slide? 
And he goes, so let me give you the principle here. Let me give you the truth here. Tell him to stop or kick him out of the church. Like you can't keep doing this stuff. Because if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then he's also the Lord over your sex and sexuality. So we get into, we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul is going to start with this whole idea of don't you know. Like maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard this truth before. Maybe this is brand new. Maybe this is a revelation for you, but it's significant for you. He says, listen, I want to tell you this truth so that you can allow this truth to impact your life. So that you can think upon it. So you can make decisions on God's word. And this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is a profound statement. Paul says, if you've been saved by Jesus, if he's gotten a hold of you and you've asked him into your life, if you've repented over your sins and asked him for forgiveness, that you received the Holy Spirit, he said, you're also a member of Christ. That you're a part of him and he's a part of you. That there's a oneness, that you know one another. There's a deep, intimate relationship between you. He says, don't you get that? Don't you get that you're connected to him as your savior? Don't you know that your life is in him? Don't you know that your identity is in him? Don't you get that your sexuality is in him? And he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, I think if people would have read this letter, they'd wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean? There's no joining going on here. It's just sex. It's just physical. This is the culture that we live in. In fact, historians tell us that in the center of Corinth was a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And so the way you would go into that temple and worship is you would actually go in and have sex with a prostitute who was actually considered a priestess in the temple. Huge influence. In fact, most people said during that time you couldn't buy land unless you went into the temple and took care of business there and did what they needed you to do. You couldn't get a hold of money. They owned, they kind of, they won the game of Monopoly in Corinth. You get what I'm saying? Paul goes, here's the thing. If you're a member of Christ and you're joining with a prostitute, they're going, what do you mean joining with a prostitute? We're not joining with prostitutes. We're just having sex. And Paul goes, yeah, yeah, see, you don't get it. You just think it's physical. But it's not just physical. It's about a joining together. It's about a unification. It's about you knowing them and them knowing you. It's about a physical, spiritual emotional joining together. And I think the first readers have gone, gone, we didn't know that. And Paul goes, I know. That's why I'm writing you. And he gives us this point of how in the world can you join together with Christ when at the same time you're trying to join together with a prostitute. So he continues on. He says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And Paul says, listen, if you've been connected to the Lord, if you're in that kind of relationship with him, he goes, this is what you should do with sexual immorality. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin 
a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul says, listen, the reason this is so important is because when we sin in the arena of sexuality in our lives, it's actually a sin against ourselves. It's a sin that we commit in our own body that hurts us. Like usually when we sin, we sin against God and other people, right? And so if I steal something from you, I usually hurt you more than I hurt me. If I lie to you, I hurt you more than I hurt me. If I physically come at you and assault you, I hurt you more than I hurt me. And Paul says, hey, but when it comes to sex, this is a sin that you commit against yourself. This is a sin that actually has the possibility to hurt you at the most inner, deepest, most significant level of who you are. And you go, well, why? Paul goes, because sex isn't just physical. Sex isn't just a physical act. It's a spiritual act. So it hurts you in your spirit. It's an emotional act. So it hurts you in your heart. It's a physical act. It hurts you in your body. And Paul says, listen, be really, really careful. And like, you should flee from all that stuff and you should consider not doing that stuff anymore because when you commit sexual sin, it's sin against yourself. And that you hurt yourself at the deepest level. And listen, we know people where this has gone wrong or maybe it's our own story where it's gone wrong in our own lives. And the reality is you know that sin hurts deeper than any other sin you've ever committed. And in fact, in a room this size, my guess is some of our deepest regrets have to do with sex. And the reason for that is sin in the sexual arena hurts us in multiple areas at the deepest level. And Paul goes on to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God You are not your own, for you were brought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Let me me give you some new thoughts here. And I want to make this really, really, really clear. I want you to get this. Because I remember growing up, I didn't tell this to first service, I remember growing up in a church, and we did this, this really weird game one time, and it was with Oreo cookies. And, like, everybody got an Oreo, and then you're supposed to, like, lick your Oreo or dip your Oreo cookie and, and that kind of stuff. Or, like, let other people lick the cookie if you want and that kind of stuff. And at the end, you kind of have this what used to be an Oreo, and I was, like, kind of this nasty thing. And then uh, I remember we went to this youth thing, and this youth pastor got up, and he's like, That Oreo is like your sex. And who wants a twice-licked, dipping milk, nasty Oreo. Let's go out and protect our Oreos. And, like, for me, that worked. <laughs> like, for the 13-year-old virgin in the room, I was like, the Oreo! Protect the Oreo! My Oreo is awesome! You know, like, mine's double-stuffed, baby. I mean, I just, like, I thought, this is going to be awesome. And then instantly I could look around the room and I saw all the people whose heads went down in shame. And see, what happened was the message was is if your Oreo is perfect and great, then you are of greater value than other people. And see, this isn't that kind of message. 
See, this isn't a church message to church people saying you're so good and everybody else is so bad. Because who's Paul talking to? People who slept with prostitutes. And he's going, listen, he goes, you guys stop sleeping with prostitutes, okay? Like, stop going to Aphrodite's temple and sleeping with prostitutes. Tell the guy to stop sleeping with his stepmom. Stop it. And this isn't a, hey, get your act together so you can pursue Jesus. This is a, as you are in the state you're in and whatever relationship you have sexually with all the hurts, baggage, and mess-ups you have, you can now follow Jesus. That it's not an if and and. It's not an if you did that, then you can never follow him. And if you don't stop, then you'll never. He's saying this. Maybe you just didn't know any better. Like maybe no one just ever told you the truth. Like maybe you had no idea that sex wasn't just physical. Maybe you had no idea it was just for one man and one woman. Maybe you had no idea when you slept with him or you slept with her that really you were sinning against yourself. See, Paul says, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, Paul says, I think what we say it this way is, we care way more about your tomorrow than we do your yesterday. Like, we care more about what Jesus wants to do in you than what you did a year ago. We're not here to judge, we're not here to label, we're not here to play judge and jury. All we want to do is see Jesus get a hold of people and to see lives changed by him and disciples made. And see, I'm not sitting up here on a high horse going, oh, I don't know where you are sexually. I'm saying this. Paul's biblical advice to us is flee from anything that's sexually immoral because it hurts us. Flee from that stuff because on the deepest, most intimate, spiritual, emotional, physical level, it's sin against ourselves. And Paul says, get away from that. He says, but rather... Instead of having what's immediate, go for what's eternal. Go for the word of the immortal God, one man, one woman, in an intimate relationship with one another. Because I think this is what Paul says. I think this is like Paul's counseling and his guidance for every single one of us. He says, listen, flee from the sexual immorality. Just get away from it, whether it's something on the computer or relationship or work. And if you made that phone call, he would show up or she would show up. And on Friday night, you know you can if you want to. And he goes, flee from it. Get away from it. It will hurt you more than you ever know. I think Paul would tell you if you're in a relationship right now, if you're sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, if you're sleeping with someone that you're not married to, I think he'd say stop because you have no idea how greatly it hurts you. And I even think Paul would, create, would quote the great philosopher Beyonce and say, if you like it, just put a, put a ring on it. Get married and make up for lost time. Have all the fun you want. But I think he'd say, listen, flee from the immorality because it hurts you on a level that you don't even understand. And then he says, listen, glorify God in your bodies. Like we could just queue up, let's get it on again. He goes, listen, if you want to really do what's right, glorify God. Ask God, what what benefits you the most? God, what pleases you the most? God, what gives you the most honor? What gives you the most glory in my life? And I think the reason Paul says that is because if you and I would do what glorifies him the most, we would discover that it would actually be the best possible thing for us. And see, then Paul gives us this little nugget of truth. Because every single one of us knows that sex is really about intimacy. Every single one of us gets it. Like, women wish men knew more that sex was about intimacy, don't you, ladies? 
And I think what men would tell you is they know they just go about it a different way than you do. But every single one of us know that sex has some sort of emotional, physical, spiritual element that it's deep, that it's significant, that it reveals things about us that no one else knows. And Paul says, listen, just get away from anything that would hurt you. Get away from anything that would sin against your own body and glorify God. Because if you glorified him, if you worshiped him in this area of your life, it would actually be the best possible thing for you. And then he gives us this little nugget. He says, sexual purity paves the way to intimacy. Sexual purity. And I'm not talking about what you've done. I'm talking about what will you do. Sexual purity paves the way to intimacy. To say from this day forward, you'll never have to worry about me exchanging the eternal for the immediate. That I'll just be a one woman guy or I'll be a one, I'll be a, a one woman guy or a one guy woman You'll never have to worry about me leaving. You'll never have to worry about me cheating. You'll never have to worry about me looking for this stuff outside of the marriage bed. You won't see me on the computer and you won't see me on the TV and you won't see me doing this stuff anywhere else. I won't have conversations that are only supposed to happen with my spouse. But I'm with you and I'm for you until death does part. See, Paul says the more we protect that, the greater it would be because it's so valuable, because it's so significant. Because it's physical and because it's spiritual and because it's emotional. Because God created it. Because he created us. That we should handle it with the utmost care. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're good to us. This is not an easy thing to talk about. But God, I do pray that you would help us. God, that you would help us to apply your truth to our lives. You would help us to discern what we should do next. And I pray that we would glorify you by the way that we respond to you this morning. God, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. Because God, we do believe that you are the creator of all things. And God, because you created us, because you gave us the breath of life. Because you're our engineer and our designer. God, that means we have value because of who you are. God, because you created sex and sexuality, it has value. And I thank you that you give us some boundaries and say, within these boundaries, have fun. Within these boundaries, know one another. In these boundaries, experience one another and be fruitful and multiply. God, help us to make you our top priority. God, that we would ask the question in all areas of our lives, God, what glorifies you the most? What pleases you the most? What gives you the most honor? God, I pray in the next few moments as we continue to worship you, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would call people to yourself. God, that maybe there's some of us here this morning that what we really need to do is to cry out to you, our Savior, to confess our sins to repent and say, hey, up to this point, I know that I've been living for me and I know that my life has been a life marked by sin. But Jesus, now I want to be forgiven by you and I give my life to you. I make you the Lord, even the Lord of my sex and sexuality, that I would seek to glorify you. And God, I pray for those of us that carry hurt in our past. God, I pray that you would heal us. God, that we would be able to forgive ourselves because you have forgiven us. 
And I pray that we would be able to leave here today not worried about what we did in the past, but thinking about what we can do today to live for you and to respond to you, what we can do to move forward by your grace. Jesus, we love you. We seek to worship you and exalt you in our lives. So draw near to us in these next few moments. May you be glorified above all things. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.